Brothers and sisters, this is Zach DePrima. I'm here with Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Today, Alex and I are discussing the topic of Christian growth, or what we might call progressive sanctification, really just growth in personal holiness. Uh, some texts that come to mind first is 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 8, where the Apostle Paul, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Another text that comes to mind is, is Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, uh, particularly verse 15, where the Apostle Paul says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, Alex, I would take that to mean that personal growth and godliness or progressive sanctification is expected from the believer from scripture is that true yeah it's certainly true certainly in the the text that you just read i think the um was it first thessalonians 4 that you read um this is the will of god your sanctification um paul puts that in a different way i think it's in romans 8 that his will is for us to be transformed into the image of his beloved son. Um, many other texts that we can we could adduce, I think of Romans 12, verse 2, uh, that we're to be transformed uh, through the renewing of our minds. This is part of Christianity 101, that, that every Christian, every follower of Christ, every disciple is meant to be growing progressively and, and you can characterize that in different ways, growing in godliness, growing in holiness, growing in sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, growing in grace. We use that language in various ways, but, but, but the, the simple point is that God does not save a person and then call them back to heaven. Uh, uh, God does not save a person and make them immediately perfectly holy and sinless. God's will for our lives is that from the time we are brought into a saving relationship with Christ and born again and given a renewed nature, that we are to steadily grow, uh, as, as you quoted in the Ephesians 4 passage, uh, uh, into the person of Christ, that mm. we're to grow in maturity mm-hmm. and in godliness. So yeah, I, I think it's assumed in the scriptures. Could you speak to the different ways scripture uses the term sanctification? Sure. A lot of times the way we use that term in English or in just kind of contemporary evangelicalism is not um, exactly the way in which the scripture uses the term in in every usage. Um, Very often the word sanctification can mean something um, more like being set apart by God or possessed by God for a special purpose or, or something like that of being God's instrument, God's vessel, and being set apart for his purposes. Well, obviously we know from Scripture those purposes would certainly include uh, our, our, sanctifi- our, 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 our growing mm-hmm. in Christ-likeness and in godliness. But, but yeah, it doesn't always, the, the, the way the Scriptures use the word sanctification doesn't always match with the way we use that term. Um, and you would say this is where really context should be our guide. Yeah, so, for absolutely. example, that that text in Thessalonians, 
the Apostle Paul says, the will of God is your sanctification. And then he goes on for the next several verses yes. to say all these hosts of sins sexual immorality, or, yeah. yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. What, but maybe well, in John 17, where Jesus um, uh, sanctify them by your by Sanctify your them truth, in, the truth, in the truth, your, your word, word is, is truth, truth. John yeah. 17, 17. Would that be a different nuance than progressive slightly sanctification? Slightly different, yeah, okay. slightly different. Um, I, I think that that in John 17, the idea is more that God is setting apart, or Christ is setting apart his disciples for mission, and the the word of Christ is to play a special part in in, in, in sanctifying them and setting them apart for this purpose. But yeah, I think the, the First Thessalonians 4 text that you reference is a good one. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he gives in the following verses through verse 8 a long list of of um, sins to avoid, virtues to pursue, etc. Alex, how do Christians grow? Well, I, I'd want to start simply by saying and establishing sort of what we've said already, and that is that the Bible assumes that Christians should be growing, hmm. that th- that's part of the Christian life. The Christian life really actually is almost the whole Christian life. You could summarize it this way, a growth in Christ-likeness, a growth in holiness. Um, I want to start with the assumption, the biblical assumption, brother, sister, you you are expected to grow, you should grow, this is part of Christianity 101. One, one um, something I find very troubling is how many Christians can be fairly fatalistic hmm. about their own progress in sanctification. Hmm. And so I remember seeing an article once, I actually didn't read the article, I just saw the title and I love the title of it. I think it was it was like something like the five um, words that kill discipleship, hmm. and those words were "This is just the way I am." Hmm. Maybe that's six. Yeah, um, people can can assume, "Well, I'm not able to change. I'm stuck in this rut. This is who I am. I'm temperamentally an impatient person. I'm temperamentally addictive in my personality. I'm temperamentally angry. I'm just that's just the way I am. I was born this way." And, and into that attitude and that mindset, I think the Bible emphatically says, uh, yes, of course you were born that way, yes. dead in sin, unable to change your stripes, but you have been born again. You've been given a new nature. You've been given new life in Christ. And part of that new nature brings with it new capacities to please God. You're given the Holy Spirit who's renewing and changing and, 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 and shaping you. And so, yes, born dead in sin, born again alive in Christ, no longer a slave to sin, hmm. mm-hmm. no, no longer um, having to take the attitude of fatalism toward our sins, that, well, that's just who I am, I, I, I can't change. And so I want to try to encourage brothers and sisters emphatically on the basis of God's word, you can change. The Bible teaches that you can change and you must change and you will change. The Bible promises that to us. And so that, that wasn't your question. Your question was, how do people change? <laughs> but it's such an important assumption to lay out there mm-hmm. because we often make excuses for ourselves. We often act fatalistic. Uh, we often uh, will, will act as though change is not a possibility for us and, and something that we can't uh, uh, grow and, and, and pursue. Uh, so the question is, how do people change? And, and uh, I suppose I would start by saying that Christians should recognize the resources at their disposal. Yes. So here, here I'm a Christian. Let's say, let's say I'm a Christian. I'm where I'm stuck in a certain sin pattern. Let's say I struggle with anger. 
Mm-hmm. And man, I, 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 I'm, my anger is set off so easily. I get so angry by little things in my life and big things in my life and relationships and inconveniences and I, I often get angry and I know that's a sin. I wanna mortify that, I wanna change. How am I going to change? Well, I think you need to start by recognizing the resources that are at your disposal. So number one, recognize you have been born again, assuming you're a Christian. You do have a new nature. Mm. And constitutive of that new nature is the power to change. Uh, number two, in terms of resources, you've been given the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within you. The spirit of power, he's called. Uh, the spirit who's powerful to change us and to shape us and to bring instincts and 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 and. and influences upon our mind and our heart and our, our life. So the Holy Spirit of God's within you. Take comfort. There's resources for change, and he's working uh, to change us. Uh, you have free and unfettered access to God uh, through Christ, who is, who, is, who is appearing on your behalf in part to promote your sanctification, not just your salvation, your forgiveness of sins, but your sanctification. Hmm. So you have a new nature, the Spirit within you, Christ appearing on your behalf, and then you have access to the means of grace. You have God's word, uh, which is living and active and it's powerful. You quoted Jesus' prayer in John 17 that it's through the word that we're sanctified. The word of God is something God uses to enlarge our hearts and to change our lives and to make us more like the Lord. And um, it's powerful in that sense. It's not mm-hmm. like reading a textbook. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, 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 a book that has bite and has power and has feet and hands. It grabs us, molds us, shapes us, changes us. So we need to access the Word of God a great deal as one of the resources in our efforts at change. Uh, I mentioned prayer already. We have the assembly of the saints. Hmm. We have the community of God's people, the church, which of course is one of the great means God uses in helping us change, bringing brothers and sisters into our lives. These are all resources at our disposal uh, uh, in changing a lot more I can say about that. That was a long-winded answer. I didn't get into some of the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. how to employ those resources. Well, I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah, that's a big but, part of it. But before we do, though, I want to ask, what do you think are some common obstacles to Christian growth? Well, like I said, a sense of fatalism. Hmm. I, I just uh, I have an addictive personality. I'm never going to kick my lust habit or my alcohol habit. You know what? I'm just I'm just naturally an anxious person. I'm always going to be anxious all the time. Um, you know, this is just who I am. I, I, I struggle with gossip, and hey, that's Sally, that's who she is. That attitude does not honor the Lord, does not speak highly of the Holy Spirit, doesn't speak highly of the power of God's Word to change us. And um, so, so that would be one obstacle, accepting uh, a sense of, of fatalism. If I can get on my soapbox for a minute, oh, this is do. one. <laughs> this, I'll Jump just say it, brother. I, my wife teases me sometimes because I, I, I'm suspicious of personality tests. I don't like the whole introvert, extrovert thing, Myers-Briggs. What's the one everybody's into now? Enneagram. Yeah. One of, one of the things I don't like about those personality I'm tests. I'm a two, by the way. That, that's great. Um, uh, so one of the things I don't like about those personality tests is because I think it does feed into our sense of this is who I am. I am an ENFJ, hmm. I am a two, mm-hmm. I am an introvert. Well, maybe, and, and maybe there's some things about those personality types that aren't honoring to God and we need to mortify them and change. Like you can change. Right. So I'm an introvert, but I know there's some element of extroversion that is required in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I can't That's true. live by myself mm-hmm. my whole life. I mean, not live in a house by myself. I can't not be part of a community there has to be some edge of extroversion, right? So, so 
anyway, done with that soapbox. <laughs> uh, the the obstacles. question was obstacles. Yeah, yeah, fatalism. Well, in that in that vein, I, I was going to say you, you mentioned extroversion and introversion. I think introversion can be a significant obstacle to Christian growth. And here's how I would say it is. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about how we, we uh, are changed from one degree of glory to mm. another. Yes. If I'm an introspective person, more than likely, I'm going to be a person who's prone to doubt, prone to always be looking to myself, always probably seeing failure within myself. Mm-hmm. Well, part of something that introverts need is they need the people of God around them to show them the ways in which they are changing, which in the ways in which they are growing. Uh, kind of goes back to sort of that fatalistic sort of point of view you were talking about, is if, you're, uh, if your only resource is yourself and your own view, you can become very fatalistic about oh, yourself yes. so, and the prospects for Christian growth. So, so the Christian community helps us to see both blind spots mm-hmm. and areas of growth and yes. grace and all that. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally say it, the way that you did, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say self-criticism and self-doubt is necessarily a function of introversion or extroversion. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, yeah, excessive introspection. Yes, that that's yeah. probably something that's going to be yeah. more a danger. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, as far as other obstacles, I would say a big one is 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 worldliness, uh, distraction. Um, the world the world is working actively against our Christian growth. Hmm. I'm just saying the forces at work in the world. What, what, what does the Apostle John say worldliness is? He characterizes it as, well, he says all that is in the world. He characterizes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things are at work in media. They're at work in universities and schools. They're at work in the workplace. They're at work in sort of everything we encounter with in, in this world and they mitigate against Christian growth I, I do think I, I think we we have to have a posture of love toward others and, and sinners and lost people in the world but we don't love worldliness mm. and we should recognize there's a built-in antipathy mm. between the Christian and the world because the world as a force is bringing to us lust of the eyes lust of the flesh pride of life and is not promoting our Christian growth. Mm. One more, there's a million obstacles we can mention, but one more that, that, that's worth mentioning for this podcast is, I think, just general idleness and apathy. One of, one of the greatest little proverbs or quotes I heard that just, I don't know, for me personally, my own discipleship stuck with me and helped me. I think I first heard it from my history professor in, in seminary. He was challenging us to be men of piety, men and women of piety. And he said... Um, he, he said, you never drift into holiness. Hmm. Or we could say Christian growth. You don't drift into growth. You don't just grow. You don't just become more holy. Uh, you, you don't drift toward Christ's likeness. You drift away from Christ and away from holiness. If I just let let myself sit still and let the forces that be sort of happen upon me, I'm going to drift away from from the Lord. It's a little bit like when you were kids, you know, you'd run out into the ocean on the beach. You'd, you'd kind of plant your 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 towel and your umbrella, and you'd go out into the water, and you'd be out there for like an hour, and then you'd look back to the the shore, and you're like, "Where's all my stuff?" And you realize, without knowing it, you mm-hmm. drifted mm-hmm. a quarter of a mile, you know, down down the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, you get slow. You don't feel it. It's imperceptible. 
So it's one of the reasons why we need the means of grace. We need the regular assembly of God's people. We need daily devotions, not just once a week. We need to be regularly exhorting and admonishing you know, one another because drift is working against us. So you're, you're saying if I'm converted, I'm a Christian now, it would be wrong for me to conclude I will naturally just be inclined to become more like Christ the rest of my life without any effort yeah that's a great question i i would say i would say no you you don't no this is i I, this is what i would say no one becomes godlier or holier without effort Hmm. you will never grow one inch in godliness in christian stature apart from effort that is plainly taught in the Bible. It will involve plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, right? But it was not I, but Christ that worked within me. I've, I've said this a million times. It just, it just is worth repeating. Um, uh, the, the experience of God's grace at work in us to bring about sanctification feels like me sweating and exerting and trying and clawing and fighting. And that's what Paul says in that passage. Mm-hmm. I worked hard. Mm-hmm. I worked hard. It was not I, the grace of God at work within me. So, so, so Christians listening to this, I mean, if you feel like my journey in Christian growth and sanctification feels like I'm clawing uphill, mm. Well, don't be surprised and be encouraged because no one claws uphill in their own sinful selves. They do it by the grace that Christ supplies. And there, there will be no, no growth ultimately without us exerting effort. And even that effort, I'm saying, is the, the work of God's grace. So, Alex, when we choose to do a podcast on the topic of Christian growth, we're assuming that all Christians should want to grow in godliness. Yeah. But well, and on that, who wouldn't? Of course. I, mean, when, when I think Ephesians 4 holds out that picture of growing up into the head, into Christ, the mature manhood, mature stature. What a glorious vision. So we should be so motivated to grow. But, but it is just the case that many Christians, if they're doing inventory on their life, they notice that they they've maybe have not been growing spiritually, but rather they're declining spiritually. Mm. I would just ask you just about that experience of, of declining in Christian growth. Do you consider that to be a, a common part of Christian experience? Yes, co- common in two ways. Common in that, at least to my knowledge, there's not a single Christian who has not experienced the feeling and the actual reality of decline hmm. in the Christian life. That is another Christianity 101 principle. I'd want to say that to a new Christian. You should expect, if if the Lord tarries and you live long, you're going to experience seasons of decline. The Psalms repeatedly assume that. Um, it's certainly the experience of many individuals in the scripture we could we could list but there's going to be periods of, of decline uh, it's also true that uh, it's it's common not just that every Christian will experience it but that we will experience it often in our Christian life um, it's just sadly for us not the case that we are perpetually at all times making positive strides and advances in the Christian life the Bible assumes Satan is raging against us it assumes that we're locked in spiritual warfare and a conflict acknowledges that there will be defeats and losses and um, that we're going to need to repent and need to turn again and all of that so so yeah that, that's that's what I say it's sadly very common hmm. 
Well, what would you say to that brother or sister who, who has just this abiding sense that they aren't growing? What would you encourage that brother or sister to do? Yeah, so a brother or sister who's cognizant of, of the fact that they're not growing in grace like they should, like they want to. Well, uh, I'd start by thanking God for, for showing, showing me that. It, it, it's, it's a, it's a, an act, a work of his mercy and grace that he shows us um, our sin and our need to change. And some people sadly don't see that they're declining and it ends up leading to disastrous consequences in their life. But it's a gift of God to see it. And then having seen it, the second thing I would encourage that brother or sister to do is to repent. Repentance is just one of the we, regular parts of the Christian life. It's just part of the air we breathe. Uh, uh, in, in the first thesis of the 95 theses that Luther nailed to the castle door in Wittenberg in 1517, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is that uh, when the Lord Jesus said, I think it's Matthew 4:17, that we're to repent, that the entire Christian life is to be a life of repentance. So I see I'm not growing as I should. I'm declining. I'm, Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to see this. I repent to you. I want to turn from spiritual laxity and sin, and I want to, I want to grow in godliness. Then I would ask for the Lord's help, because he's so often pleased to give us help. And then I would go back to the fundamental text about Christian growth and about Christian piety and godliness. I would go to the Word of God, try to stir my heart, to be more sensible of both the need to grow and the means by which we grow. I would not, if I'm in a period of decline, I would not withdraw from other Christians. Mm. Sadly, that's what lots of people do. I don't feel spiritually vibrant, or maybe I'm aware that I've been in sin. I really can't go to church right now. That's so wrong. We go to the house of God to have our hearts calibrated to the truth and to have ourselves revived and refreshed in, in, in the presence of God. This is a more complex subject, but I think taking the Lord's Supper is very important in this regard. If you're living as a hypocrite, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. But if you're living just as a garden variety disciple who sometimes sins and needs to repent and feels their sin very strongly, you need the Lord's table to recognize that that the Lord's death was for you, to commune with Christ there at the Lord's Supper. Don't, don't withdraw from the Lord's Supper. All those things are things you need if you're feeling, you know, a sense of declining. I, I think also what a lot of people, at least the people I talk to often who have this problem, they see themselves declining or maybe they see their sins, they just loom large in their minds. I think it's helpful to try to give to such people a sense of biblical realism. Hmm. I, I do fear through things people have read or things people have heard on the internet or whatever, or just thought themselves, they can develop a sort of triumphal Christian living sort of mindset. I shouldn't be struggling. I shouldn't have these problems. And I, I don't want to give license to sin and say, oh, it's just fine. We're all sinners. This happens. But I, I want to say, in a sense, well, what, what did you expect? The Bible would give us every reason to believe we're going to struggle, we're going to wrestle, we're going to experience periods of decline. And in that sense, I don't want the spiritual decline to lead a brother or sister ultimately to despair. I want to give them a sense of realism. that This is going to be part of your life. Rehearse regularly the rhythms of repentance, faith, recommitting ourselves to mm -hmm. God, 
being among God's people, being in corporate worship and at the Lord's table, giving ourselves to study out God's word and praying fervently that it would change us and mold us and shape us. And the last thing I would say is put in the work, put mm-hmm. in the effort. If if we're in decline because we haven't cut out eyes and and, and cut off hands, let's, let's do the hard work of mortifying our sin, putting it to death. Alex, you've used the word recommit, repentance, mm-hmm. uh, some other words that come to mind that I think are common to, to perhaps Baptist or words like revival. Like I'm mm-hmm. planning a revival conference this weekend. We, yeah, we, sure. we, many of us have been to conferences like that or, or events like that. And then also the word uh, rededicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Christians can speak of a time where they rededicated their life to Christ. This is something sure. separate from a conversion experience. What do you think Scripture has to say about those ideas? Well, I think I think there's a way in which we can employ that language that is completely faithful to the Bible, and there's a way we can do it that's not. If 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 you're using the language, I rededicated my life, I recommitted my life, I went to revival and all that. There's just to look this in the face. There's a, a a culture, certainly present in Southern Christianity in the states. It's probably present in other places in the world. That that is um, has has a very low view of conversion and new birth. Mm-hmm. Conversion and new birth is a matter of walking an aisle, praying a prayer, and you do that fourteen times before you become an adult, and three times thereafter. And I've been baptized three times. This person has been baptized five times. I rededicated my life when I was six, thirteen, twenty-seven. Where, where where probably what happened at all those points for a lot of people is you got very emotional for for about thirty minutes. Hmm. I don't mean to be crass or, or look down on that. I'm just saying culturally in the, in, in the crudest form, this is what's taken place in Southern Christianity. And so if, if we're talking sort of glibly about this sort of rededicating my life kind of thing, I'm not a big fan of that because it's not really thinking in the Bible's categories of I was dead and then I was alive, very binary. I was lost, I was without God, and then I was born again. That, that that doesn't happen nine times in your life. That happens at, at a point in your life, and we need to be careful about how we talk about it. That said, the Bible often speaks of those who already believe in God and follow the Lord being revived and re, being sort of recommitting themselves and repenting and turning again. Hmm. Well, we wouldn't say in those instances, an example, that exact language is used with respect to Peter. Peter is already following the Lord. He denies the Lord. He's, he's, the Lord says, you have to turn again. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter does that. Um, the, the psalmists are often praying that God would revive them according to his word, Psalm 119. Um, uh, I love Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah fifty-seven, verse fifteen, that God revives the spirit of the lowly and the contrite. Well, well, what we're saying there is not that we're born again a second time, or we're saved again, or we somehow lost our salvation and got it back. What we're saying is we were in a position of spiritual decline. We had been born again. We were beginning to decline spiritually. We weren't experiencing the presence of God in our lives as we wanted to, and we weren't experiencing growth in the way we knew we should. And the Lord, in his grace and mercy, brought us to see that, brought us to a place of of contrition, and then revived us, caused us to turn again and to once again commit ourselves uh, to to the proper way. It's not like being saved again mm-hmm. or being born again again. It's It's having been born again, being revived and picked up and, 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 and pushed back uh, on our way. That, that would be the appropriate way to use that language. 
Alex, we have just a few minutes left. So the last question I'd like to ask you is uh, what are ways I can incorporate other believers in my life to help me grow spiritually? Well, uh, I, I just want to state more clearly the assumption that's in that question. You should, you should involve believers in, in your life and in your sanctification. The Bible assumes that. On this podcast, I've mentioned a number of times Hebrews 3, that idea that, that I'm, to, I'm to recognize that in my heart, I, I'm to guard against an unbelieving heart. Hebrews 3, I want to say verse 12 says, and verse 13 tells us, Therefore, we're to exhort and admonish one another daily. I'm to recognize I can decline, I can drift. I have to be careful to make sure I'm not, even, I'm not a hypocrite even, mm-hmm. and an unbeliever. And so I need other Christians in my life to help me. In, in sanctification. And, and uh, Hebrews 10 is another important passage where to consider one another, how to stir one another up to love and good works. The idea is not just that I'm supposed to do that positively for others, but I need that from others. Hmm. And there's, there's just dozens and dozens of other passages like that that would indicate I need the encouragements, the admonishments, the exhortations, the helps of other brothers and sisters to help me grow. How, how much do we need one of those encouragements? I think one of the most underrated, I think we think of community as helping us see our sins. That's definitely true. And some of us need that more. But, but I, I do think often one of the things the Christian community can do for many of us that we find it hard to do for ourselves is show us, like you said, areas in which we're growing in grace. I personally have the sort of temperament that, that sees, I think, failure and sin and defeat more than victory and growth and positive change. And I find myself more often discouraged over the things that are still in my life that were present 10 years ago. And I'm like, Alex, why haven't you shaken this? Mm-hmm. And it's so encouraging to hear from a brother or sister. You know, Alex, I just want to say, um, a few years ago, you know, you, you would have been more characterized. By, I've just seen you change mm-hmm. in this way. I've seen you grow in this mm-hmm. way. And that's one of the advantages of having Christian friends who have been with you for the long haul, being in a church setting for a long time. You, you get that picture of people. So I think that's one of the ways the church community can help as well, to encourage us in areas where we, we have grown. Well, brothers and sisters, we love you. We hope to see you soon. Alex, thank you for your time. Thanks, brother.